Roop looks very confident at this point. DiBiase has sustained an unbelievable amount of pressure. This match is it's all the line right here for Ted DiBiase. It's all the line right here. And Roop has got the whole of the figure four locked in. DiBiase may be unconscious. DiBiase's out. The referee has stopped the match. The referee's decision goes to Bob Roop. And right here on Mid-South, boy, we've got a new, new North American champion. Welcome back to the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. He's going to be joining us here in just a few moments. And of course, as always, I am your co-host, Ray Russell, along for the ride. And I, just like you guys, I cannot wait for more great stories from one Mr. Bob Roop. And as long as we don't get too sidetracked this week on the show, expect to hear Bob tell that story of Puerto Rico riot number two. Of course, we're going to go back in time and talk a little more about the early stages of Bob Roop's professional wrestling career. And I have a few names down here that I want to discuss this week. The main name being Terry Funk. Bob looking to pay his respects to the late, great legend Terry Funk here this week by maybe sharing a story or two. And I can't wait for that. But before we get there, just a quick reminder, guys, that you can listen to the Wrestling Stoop and our sister shows like the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories currently covering the years of 1981 in Georgia Championship Wrestling. 1986 in the Cowboys UWF, and coming soon, it's 1985 in the Memphis Wrestling Territory. Going to be added to the projects there on regional wrestling. And I'm also working on the side doing a tremendous amount of research about the 1970s in the old LaBelle Los Angeles Territory. Talking to a few people, can't wait to bring them on to talk all about the LA promotion and its booming and maybe not so booming years as well. You can also listen to the Wrestling Memory Grenade podcast. The OG, the original podcast here on the brand, just finished up the year of 1987 in the WWF this week on the Wrestling Memory Grenade Show as we head into the new year of 1988, moving into WrestleMania 4. And on the way, we'll be looking at more Saturday Night's main event, as well as the first ever Royal Rumble event that took place on the USA Network. So much coming very soon. Plus, we'll find out what did the Islanders do to Matilda, the Bulldog? Those questions and more will be answered soon on the Wrestling Memory Grenade podcast. You can also listen to Monday Warfare, the battles within. It's all about the Monday Night War, covering the history of the Monday Night War one week at a time. And you can listen to all of those shows and more, all part of the WrestleCopia podcast network located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Google, and beyond. And be sure to follow me on social media, guys, for all the latest goings on here. At the WrestleCopia Podcast Network Plus, I'm constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history. You can follow me over on X, the former Twitter. You can follow me there at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Rasslin Grenade. And of course, you can subscribe to my YouTube guys, talking about YouTube.com slash Rasslin Grenade. And I should also mention that you guys can find Bob Roop himself over on Facebook. Look up his name, Poor Bob Roop, facebook.com slash Poor Bob Roop. 
Go ahead and friend them there. Bob welcoming new friends all the time. He'd love to hear from each and every one of you. And of course, last but certainly not least, I actually just had my computer repaired this week, this weekend, so I could really use your help and reimbursement. Had to get it done to keep these podcasts going. So I'm asking you guys to give it a try, talking about that $5 all-access tier over at patreon.com slash Copia. That address again, patreon.com slash Copia. Get you all sorts of gifts for just $5, including all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes, pages and pages of show notes for every episode of the Regional Wrestling Podcast, The Grenade, and Monday Warfare. You'll also get early access to many of the shows here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. But that's not all. You'll also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, random bonus video drops, remastered versions of the earliest episodes of the WrestleCopia podcast, which include enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before. And of course, you get our Patreon-exclusive watch-along series, covering many past WWF and WCW events, and you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription, cancel any time. Give it a try for a month, guys. I think you like the content that I offer, and every penny of it goes right back here into paying the bills to keep the WrestleCopia Podcast Network up and running for the months and the years to come. So please, if you have a few bucks to spare, you're looking to support that next up-and-coming podcast brand, please consider making it WrestleCopia. Also, before we get going, let me turn you on to something here this week. Rather, on to someone, I should say. I'm talking about a fellow by the name of Pete Letterberg. And you guys have probably seen some of his photos online, hopefully with the watermark attached. But Pete seemingly has an infinite amount of pictures, photos, of just about any and every wrestler you could ever ask for, going all the way back to the 1960s, all the way up to present times. Pete has kindly offered up several great photos of Mr. Bob Roop for us to use in promotional tools here on the Wrestling Stew. But, boy, you talk about ask and ye shall receive. I asked Pete if I might could glance at what he had available to choose from, and he sends me, without counting, guys, I'm thinking thousands of pictures of Bob Roop throughout his career, both in color and in black and white. And I've been a little busy on my side to sort through all the photos just yet, but expect to see some great rare shots of Bob Roop here soon. And I strongly encourage anyone who wants great, unique, and rare action photos and promo shots of pretty much any star you can think of throughout wrestling history to hit Pete up. That's Pete Letterberg. That's L-E-D-E-R-B-E-R-G. You can find him on Facebook, and you guys can buy prints of any of his photos. And not only is he on Facebook, you can also email Pete at plmathphoto. That's P-L-M-A-T-H-F-O-T-O at Hotmail.com. I want to thank you again, Pete. We haven't started using the pictures just yet, but plenty of great shots to come. I guarantee you guys, Pete Letterberg, guys, just a great guy with an insane wrestling photo collection. Take advantage. Contact him today. And now with all of that said and all of that out of the way, it's time to bring him back on the show. It's what you've been waiting for, guys. Week three of the Wrestling Stoop, and we can't do it without this man. Please welcome back Mr. Bob Root. Bob, welcome back to the program, and I hope you've had the opportunity to read just some of the kind words out there on social media about the first couple episodes of the program, The Wrestling Stoop. It's been a very welcoming response from the wrestling fans out there. Well, it's great. Uh, I'm really glad to hear it. 
have had some personal responses on my Facebook account, but I don't really have a way to check. I don't have the expertise <laughs> to know that. I'm, I'm not really techie, but uh, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I think uh, we have stories that nobody else is going to be able to tell. And and I hope I I think they're interesting. I hope that uh, I hope the folks out there will too. Oh, I know a lot of people have been getting a kick out of all of the stories from everyone. You know, from that last Puerto Rico. Which yes, guys, don't worry, we're going to get into the other Puerto Rico riot Bob discussed at the end of last episode. But uh, also, you know, you you promised we we would come back and tell that story of that that young gentleman who tried out with Billy Robinson and company. Kind of ended awkwardly, or at least differently than I would have expected, with Bob Orton busted open and all that good stuff. But it's just been a fun time. You you dropped uh, the name Hulk Hogan at the top of the program last episode. A lot of people surprised about that one. Oh yeah, Hogan started in the seventies too. So you you've got a story pretty much on everyone, and we'll talk about that as the show goes on. But first, Bob, I have a little surprise for you here this week. Uh, last time out, we talked about your first match, that funny story with Dick Dunn being your first opponent. Now, you remembered that it took place in Fort Myers at the National Guard Armory, and you were correct. But we didn't have the date of the event for your debut match. That's well, right. Bob, <laughs> I saved this to tell you on air because that bothered me that I, I couldn't locate it myself, the date of your first match, something I felt you deserved to have here on your audio scrapbook, so to speak. So I, okay. went, to, I went to social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever you want to call it now, X, and I asked around, hoping maybe somebody maybe somebody could help us out. And I got to tell you, it took almost no time, thanks to a couple of true wrestling historians, amazing work in preserving wrestling history in their own rights. I must say thank you to Mr. Tim Dills, who almost immediately sent me the clipping, Bob, of the results from that card over on Facebook, the newspaper ad, the actual clipping. So uh, uh, I, had, wow. I, I downloaded it. I saved it here. We have it. Of course, Mr. Tim Dills, he's put out a lot of great books covering wrestling history, so I had to thank him. But he's not to be outdone, Bob, because just a couple minutes later, over on Twitter, Al Getz, also another great wrestling historian, love his work on charting the territories, he too sends me an identical clipping that he had in his memorabilia. So both men, Tim and Al, I feel like there's a tool time joke there, confirming your <laughs> debut, your debut match, Bob, took place Tuesday. July 29th, 1969. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's, uh, well, I knew it was a Tuesday because that's when Fort Myers ran. Mm -hmm. I'm glad they both had the same date. That, that probably corroborates it. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for um, for sending that in. Uh, it's nice to know. Now, now I know when I started. So uh, I remember everything else about it, but uh, it's nice to know the date. Thank you again. Yeah, and the uh, just so I don't know if you recall this, but the feature match that night, six-man tag team action, sees Sputnik Monroe, Sonny King, a couple of your riding buddies, and Louis Tillette over the trio of Duke Kiyomuka, Smasher Sloan, and Vincent Lopez. Now, it also reads later on in the blurb, it says, also on the card, here's the results. It says, Bob Roop, the former national amateur king and 1968 Olympic team member, substituted in the opener, defeating Dick Dunn. Do you recall you being a substitution in that match? Not a bit. Not, okay. Absolutely not. Okay. I, 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 don't, I don't think that, I don't remember looking at programs. Uh, I don't remember at all until I got later in my career. I certainly never saved any. Okay. I should have. I wish I had. Like Jim Cornette saved everything. I, well, it's good to know. I'm sure we'll, I'll, I'll get a, a chance to look at those before too long. 
You talked about, you know, your nerves going into your first match ever against Dick Dunn. Dunn may be afraid you were going to pop his head like a grape, accidentally, mind you. But not only is this your first match ever, but much like many who break in, start from the bottom, so to speak, a preliminary match here, the opening match on the card. Do you remember that being the opening match of the night? Oh, yeah. Oh, big time. <laughs> because, you know, the audience was full of anticipation. And you know, later on, when I became experienced, the first match is really important. A lot of times, I would never have, later on in my career, if I had a rookie like myself, I never would have put him in the first match. I would have had another match with some seasoned wrestlers right. to go out there and give the people a real pop and then have the second match be listed on the on the card or in the program as a special intro with, with the newcomer and uh, you know, make it like it's, it is a, an introductory match. And that way you can also... Uh, push it a little bit too is like the reason it's not an opener because this is an introductory match of someone who has some little importance right even though it's their first match they get moved up the card a little bit and that gives it a little more prominence it gives you an excuse to run it second but seems no. like it also might work a little bit in helping out the nerves too hey there was already a match in the ring i'm not the i'm not the first guy out tonight these fans are i know i'm green as grass I hope these fans don't realize that as well. So I, I'm not saying it would get rid of all the jitters, but it seems like it would help just a tiny bit with the nerves going on second. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, what people are anticipating, they're impatient. They've been waiting, some of them, for an hour right? For in their seats, waiting for the action to start. And I come out there, and I remember I went out to the ring by myself. I mean, the, the referee wasn't in the ring yet. I got in the ring, and I mean, I didn't, I don't even remember looking at the, the audience or the people in the audience or, or if anybody said anything to me. I was, I was so focused on, okay, <laughs> tie up, get a headlock. Come on, remember your routine. Right. And, and then uh, the referee got in there, and then uh, after he clear, found out that I wasn't going to, you know, just attack Dick Dunn as soon as he hit the ring, he signaled him to come in, and then we we end up getting started, but uh, <laughs> it's still funny. You know, just a, a, a little side aside here. Yeah, female wrestler La Lani Kai. Yes, uh, was from Fort Myers, and she was she was in the audience that. And I don't know if she was there that night, but in later shows there, I met her. She was a fan, and she wanted to get oh. into wrestling. Wow. Okay. And she yeah, and she came up and was asking me about it, and but I mean that's as far as it went. She she went ahead and I think she went up to Mula, Mula, uh, right. Mula school, and then she's had a you know she's had she's been working for she's still working I think, <laughs> uh so she's been working yeah she was she was a teenager you know like a yeah, she had quite a, a little port- career she was the WWF ladies champion during the rock and wrestling era, feuding with Wendy Richter she went on to hold the ladies tag titles up there too. Worked against yeah. those jumping bomb angels in the late '80s, so Leilani got some play out there in the national, you know, exposure. Yeah, and you know, I was glad to see it because she was a, you know, a nice young young girl, and uh, you know, she had these these aspirations and a dream, and you know, she got to uh, she got to realize them. So I thought that'd be nice to throw out because she's a colleague, and you know, it, it, oh, absolutely, she, we know we know where she's. I, I'm not sure she's from Fort Myers. That might have been the closest match. She might have lived in another town somewhere close by. But right. anyway, I thought I'd throw that out there. Oh, very cool stuff. I don't know her personally, but I love I love Leilani Kai's work. So very, very cool to get another little tidbit in like that. I love that. I love these little uh, <laughs> these little sidesteps we take that 
I never know what's coming with you, Bob. And you, it's, it never disappoints either. It's not like, oh, maybe you're on, an, you're listening to another podcast and something was getting good, and then they sidetrack. You're like, I don't want to hear about that, but it's that's never the case here. It's always something else equally as good. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you, Ray. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you for saying that. There might there might be people out there going, what the hell is he talking about? Well, Get to the Puerto Rico or wherever. <laughs> speaking of which, you know, last week you left us with sort of a cliffhanger. Uh, art of a good storyteller, they say, leave them wanting more. And you left me wanting more and many of us all wanting more as, uh, based on some of the feedback I've gotten. So you told one Puerto Rico story involving Dale Lewis, the Missouri Mauler, a few others, but you left the book open. When you mentioned you had another story that took place down there in Puerto Rico featuring a real motley crew of talent. I don't know if you want to run back over the names here, refresh everybody before you get into the story here this week. Well, did it, I seem to recall telling a story about the the end result of the episode I'm going to flesh out You know, now was when we were all in the dressing room. There was a riot going out in the building and all right. the cops were in, in the dressing room. Yes. It was like 40 cops are in the dressing room. I asked, well, why aren't they out there taking care of the, the getting the people out of the building so we yeah. can leave? And they said, well, they're all hiding in here, too. That's <laughs> just, that's the story I'm telling about. And, you know, okay. I thought about calling it. There was a movie uh, a while back called The Perfect Storm. And this night we're talking about was the perfect riot because all the ingredients that went into it uh, created what happened, which was, it was just guaranteed to be a riot. One of them was that Jim Barnett had come back from Australia and was, had gotten involved. I think, I'm not sure, I need to have, I'm going to try to find this out. There might be historians out there or people for some other reason that are going to know exactly how Barnett got, he traded or sold part of his uh, interest in, or all of his interest in uh, Australia to get a piece of either Florida and or Georgia or both. And he was back in the States, and he was running things. He was telling us what to do from the Florida office in Puerto Rico. And Johnny Weaver had come in and, to be the booker, and he'd never, worked, he'd never booked in Florida before. Mm-hmm. Neither one of these guys knew a thing about Puerto Rico. So I'd already worked in the office uh, by this time as an assistant booker, but I'd worked in Puerto Rico a bunch of times. And I, you know, I'd already had we already, that Dale Lewis thing had happened years earlier. So... Toro Tanaka was going against Jose Lothario in the in the match, and they were going to do a hot finish where he was going to screw him out of the belt. You know, he's going to cheat him and take take the title. And what they wanted to do, what the, the instructions they sent, were for me and Dick Slater to go down to the ring uh, when the match was over and help Tanaka get out of there. And I told him. I doubt very seriously if we would even make it to the ring if we tried to do that. What these fans are going to assume that we're doing is we're coming down there to help Tanaka, right? Uh, kill, kill Lothario or hurt Lothario. Right. We're, ne- we're never going to make it down there. And they also said, "And you guys stay in your wrestling clothes." I said, <laughs> "You're out of your mind." I said, "If we're standing out here, we've already wrestled. Now this was the main event we're talking about. We'd already worked our matches." So if we stay out there in our wrestling clothes, geez, I wonder why we're staying there in our wrestling clothes and not getting dressed and, you know, back in our civilian clothes. What could we possibly be thinking? Is it possible we're going to go run down the ring and get involved? I mean, that's what the fans are going to assume. Sure. So I told them, hell no, we're not going to leave her. I said, we're, you know, I don't particularly feel like running down there and getting messed up and 
but I'm not going to leave my wrestling clothes on. We're going to put our civvies on. So we're standing out there watching the, the finale of this match. Uh, it was in a big building. It had a balcony. Uh, it was a convention building of some kind, but it was enormous. It probably seat 25,000 and maybe 15, but it was big. Uh, it wasn't full, but there was uh, a few thousand people there. So we're standing out there, which is dangerous because is, is, there's there were no cops around us. They weren't going to hang around with us. They were over where they weren't being threatened. So Slater and I are standing out there, and there's guys walking behind us with knives in their hands. So Slater's standing facing backwards, and I'm standing facing forward, and we're, we're both our heads on a swivel. And you, just to make sure, I brought, I brought, I had the Florida heavyweight belt. Mm-hmm. I brought it out there with me as a weapon. Wow. Okay. I, I had it swinging from my hand. I mean, I, you know, I let them know, yeah, come at me with that knife. You're going to eat this belt. So anyway, they did the finish. And I told Weaver, I said, look, we're not going down there. We'll wait. And if there's trouble, then we'll go down there. We'll try to open the aisle. If the aisle fills up where he can't get out. I said, make sure, and I, I told uh, Tanaka myself, he's a great guy, I really liked him. Mm-hmm. But I told him, I said, man, whatever you do, do not run. Uh, if you get in a problem, we're, you know, give me the high sign, we can be there in about five seconds. Right. So he's on his way back, he, you know, he, he did foul Lothario somehow, and he got out of there, he's about halfway up the aisle, he's by the part where all the people were, were sitting, and bless seven or eight rows of the chairs were empty. But there was okay. a guy that picked up the, the folding chairs. There were sections of like three in a row mm-hmm. that were uh, together, right. like they were a set. And there was a guy that picked up all he could pick it up. What he did is he, he tipped it and he just knocked it over. And, and Tanaka happened to be looking the other way when the chairs went over. He heard this, <laughs> this horrible screeching noise just a few feet away, and without even looking to see what it was, he took off like a shot. Wow. And I'm talking about, he's, uh, he set a world record. He got by us on his way back to the dressing room. Slater and I sat in there. He got by us in, in like two seconds, was in the dressing room. Meanwhile, the guy that pushed the chairs over, he, he sees him run, so he takes off after him, and everybody else starts coming too. There was no riot until then. As soon as Tanaka took off, and I'm not blaming him. They shouldn't. They shouldn't even done that finish. But anyway, um, <laughs> here they come. If Slater and I, Slater and I, in order to get back in the dressing room safely, we're going to have to run. I don't want to run because you have to run with your back turned, and there might be somebody faster than me with a knife in their hand. So we did. That guy that was that threw the chairs was leading the charge. He was about oh 25, 30 feet in front of everybody. The rest of the people were starting to come. When he went by Slater, Slater hit him with a right cross and turned the guy completely around. I believe and, uh And when he, it, I was about four feet along the route, and there was a great big concrete cylinder there, and I just steered the guy. Uh, he was he had turned completely around. Mm-hmm. It was running backwards, and I just steered him, so he ran into that, that concrete abutment. Oh, and and uh, down he went, and that, <laughs> that stopped everything. And then Slater, I, Slater and I walked. What you know, keeping our eyes open, our heads on a swivel, we walked into the dressing room, and that's where we stayed for. I think it took two hours to get those people out of the building. Wow! Oh, believe me, it's dangerous as it could be. You know, I mean, there's no way of knowing. I mean, you never know. There's people that might even bring weapons. You know, like pistols or knives or uh, certainly knives. But I mean, something that 
with bullets in it. So uh, that didn't have to happen at all. But you have people, you have people that are running a show that don't know what they're doing, and you're trying to tell them, and they think, well. I mean, you're not the booker, you know, Johnny Weaver. I'm the booker. I'm the one. That's what I want to do. And I said, well, I want. The, he wasn't there. Barnett and Weaver weren't there. Right. We got these. We got these instructions uh, from over the telephone. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I, you know, I was running at night. I said, man, you guys, you really don't want to do this down here, you know. And neither one of them. I don't know if any of them have ever been there for a match. So anyway. Yeah, it was. Uh, we were very lucky that that uh, you know I felt bad for that poor fan, but right. and away he brought it on himself. You know, I hope he didn't have any uh, you know uh, permanent damage. But uh, it was it was pretty exciting. And again, uh, the cops. I guess the people were aroused to the point the cops were didn't want to go out there and have anything to do with them. Well, cops so, are just people too. I can't really yeah, yeah. blame them when they, when you got a riot on your hands like that. If you don't, if you didn't come properly equipped. Or certainly outnumbered. Well, uh, you know, the judicial system down there, I don't want to segue too far away from no, it. We're I, through. With, we're not through completely with Puerto Rico because we're going to talk along the line somewhere. We're going to talk about Bruiser Bodie and what happened to him down there. Right. Uh, we're not going to do that tonight, but uh, it's, it's, it deserves a lot more time than just sure. mentioning it. But right. but part of, the, part of the, the, the judicial system is set up is that if you're an off-island person, you you know, you've got a couple strikes against you already in terms of getting a fair shake. You know, that's, I, I don't like it, but I understand it. I mean, uh, at the same time, if a Puerto Rican citizen was in, uh, you know, in uh, Wichita Falls and got in trouble, uh, they might have prejudice against them when they went to court. Uh, just from not being, you know, like a white American, uh, maybe if they don't speak English or whatever. Uh, so anyway, you got any more questions about Puerto Rico? No, well, I just got one question really quickly about this specific incident. You probably, you may not even recall, but I'm just curious. What caused this riot outside of them seeing Tortunaca make that dash? You told us last time out, Sam Steamboat gave you a very encouraging word of advice when it comes to fans. Do you remember what that was, what you told me last time around? Yeah, never run. Never run. That's what Dale Lewis did, started a yeah. ride number one that you were discussing, and that's apparently what Toru Tanaka did. It's hard picturing Toru Tanaka run. No offense, Tanaka fans. He's a big guy, but, man, he was a, like a tank. Uh, it's hard hard to envision him physically running, but also hard to envision him being, you know, like, oh, my God, I got to get out of here. He just always came off as that tough guy character. And I'm not saying he's not a tough guy. He wasn't a tough guy. It's just I, I get it, man. I, I might have run ran myself. You guys, think, you and you and Dickie Slater, you didn't run. You kind of tried to not incite it even further by, oh, they're all scared of us. Yeah, and and running was gonna. What what happened is when we hit when the guy hit the pillar and went down, he was out, and they the rest of them stopped. Right. Okay. So Slater, you know, and so for Slater and me to run, that just get them started again. Right. So we just walked casually. I mean, what? I wouldn't flip anybody a bird or anything. We just walked <laughs> as if, you know, I was still swinging that belt around, but or at least swinging it in my hand so they knew I had a weapon. But, uh, you know, we just walked to the restroom. I mean, we, we, we didn't just saunter. We weren't taking a walk in the park. But, we, you know, we got there pretty quickly, but we weren't, we weren't running. Right. And uh, I think Tanaka himself intimidated him. You know, the guy's a big, uh, got a, 22 inch neck and 
you know, he's a great big, solid, uh, nasty-looking guy. Right. Knows all, you know, his, his rep is knowing all karate and all these martial arts, and he looks apart. I think people were scared, uh, individually were scared of him. And see, that's the deal. If you keep people as individuals, you don't get a riot. When you run, you, you, trigger, an, you trigger an impulse in people that brings them together. You create a common denominator. Right. Yes, the mob mentality. As long you don't want to do anything to create that kind of group mentality against what you're doing. Um, how about a Terry Funk story on that very subject? Sure. In always, time, always time for a Terry Funk story. Well, <laughs> for you out there, you, you kind listener, Ray and I have planned what we're going to talk about, but we're agreed that spontaneity sometimes is, is nice. And these stories come up. And even though we hadn't even planned on not we were gonna we were gonna talk about Terry Funk, but here's the way to talk about Terry that fits into what we're talking about with uh, the mob mentality, anti-riot. Okay. Terry uh, Dory Jr. was working with Jack Briscoe in Jacksonville, and they had ha they had these series of great matches just uh, in all over Florida, Miami, Tampa, Jacksonville, and Orlando. They a lot of times they went an hour, they went an hour to this time limit, and great you know the matches weren't they weren't running around they weren't doing a lot of hit the ropes and you know backdrops and the hip throws and all that a lot of wrestling put being in a hold uh, usually ended up at near the end that Jack would have with like at fifty nine minutes Jack would have Dory Jr. in the figure four his finish hold right and. The first couple of times he did it, they were close enough to the ropes that Dory, after looking like he was going to give up, would just manage to barely grab the rope and the referee would have to break the hold. And that would save Dory and the time would run out. This time they worked it out where when he got, when Jack got the hold on him, they were out in the middle of the ring. And so there was like two minutes left. So there, it looked like Dory was going to have to give up. Well, Terry was, had worked earlier. And uh, of course, this was the main event. The Funk and Briscoe was the main event, the last match. Terry runs down there, right, races down there from the back, gets up on the turnbuckle. And now uh, uh, Jack's got the figure four on Dory, and Jack's kind of leaned back. He's got his foot. He's kind of leaned back. Terry jumps off the top rope or the, the turnbuckle, the metal pole. He's got one foot on the ropes and the other <laughs> foot on the pole. Yeah. He jumps off and drops a knee across Jack's throat it looked like it killed him it looked like his head should pop off wow. when i'm i'm watching from the stage and terry for some reason i thought why in the heck didn't he tell about four or five of us to be out here to help him you know to help him get back here how's he going to get back because when he did that all the people in the, sitting on the aisles ran out of their seats and formed up around the ring and i'm thinking how's terry now dory has been in that leg lock for like two minutes before right. terry got there He's not going to be able to sprint out of there. Terry's going to have to help him out of there if you, unless you want to expose the business that he's not <laughs> right. really hurt at all. So he's got to pretend, at least pretend he's hurt. So how are they going to do that without getting killed? So I'm watching. I'm thinking, okay, I mean, I, I believe me, my, <laughs> my hair was standing on end because I'm going to have to go down, and I'm, I'm ready to do it. But still, it looked like really risky business. So Terry... Got Dory fairly close to the uh, corner where they were going to be getting out, the heel entry corner and exit corner. Uh, they, they came down different aisles. So 
Uh, and he went to the other side of the ring, and I had no, I didn't have a clue what he was going to do. Now, around the ring, the ring is surrounded by people, not quite back to the front row of seats, but it's, the people around the ring are about six feet thick, all the way around it on both sides. And they're, they're screaming and yelling and hitting the mat, and they're, come on, get out of here, Terry, we're going to kill you. <laughs> he gets on the far end of the ring, and he, he comes running across the ring, he jumps up, he puts his hand on the top of that turnbuckle that he just put his foot on to jump on Jack's neck, and he, he leaped off the, the, the mat surface over the top rope right into the middle of the people that were waiting at wow. the end of the stairs down there. <laughs> wow. And they all, they all scattered. They <laughs> scattered like quail having a big hunting dog <laughs> run right in the middle of them. And and they stayed scattered. Terry got Dory out of there. I got down there by that time. And what he did, what I do in that, he put people back into a mob, uh, uh, from a mob mentality, back into, I better watch my own hide here. This guy's going to kill me. Or he's going to land on me or, you know. <laughs> right. And people were running and scattering and created a big aisle there. And, it, it, you know, and also it made Terry look like he was fearless. Sure. He wasn't worried. I'm worried about all of them, and people start thinking about their, you know, their own health. And by that time, we had we we had myself and a few a few of the cops were down there, and so we got out there without any problem. Neither one of them got hurt, you know. And Terry, Terry, that was no big deal. Uh, that you know, that was that was just you know that was just a trick just, of the trade. Just another night for Terry Funk. <laughs> well, it was a trick of the trade. I didn't know it. I'd never seen anything else. I'd never seen anybody else do anything like that. But um, it worked. It was great. Right. So, yeah, that mob mentality, boy, you need to avoid that if you can, if you're a wrestler. You don't want – I mean, it's okay if they're all acclaimed. They're, you know, they, you've put a guy over so great that they're all of one mind and thinking he's the greatest wrestler in the world, but not when it's, it's wanting to kill the heel. You certainly don't want them of one mind about that. <laughs> well, yeah, it was a very intriguing story. Uh, certainly didn't disappoint. I was going to ask you, you know, we, we were talking earlier a little bit about maybe some of the names we'd go over here this week. And, you know, Terry was one of them. And, you know, I asked you if you had any good Terry stories. I'm sure you did. But I, I asked you, you know, maybe we share a Terry story or two since, you know, he recently passed away, sadly. Uh, one of the greatest of all time to ever do it in the ring and outside of the ring is, uh, uh, yeah, man, just double tough, man. <laughs> Terry fucking what a great story. Basically trying to dive out onto the fans just crazier than. Nuttier than a pet coon is what Jim Ross would have probably said. Uh, yeah. Well, shall we shall we tell another one? Well, that would be. I was just going to ask you. Do you have another one in mind? Well, yeah, the one I originally had thought about um, about telling uh, again that 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 Terry story came up because of the mob mentality thing. But uh, yeah, I, when I was working uh, within the first eighteen months of being in the business, I went out to Amarillo for. It was the first territory I went out to from Florida after I got started. I mean, I went to Japan for five weeks, seven weeks, and I went to Australia for a few weeks, but it was the first other territory I went out. Eddie Graham asked me to go out, do him a favor, to go out there and work for the Funks for six months. So because Eddie got me started and all that, I said, okay. And, you know, I didn't have any problem with doing it, except once I got there, uh, it was ungodly trips. I mean, uh well, that uh, leads right into this story. We were working on a Sunday. We worked seven days a week. On Sunday, we worked in Albuquerque. And the, even though the show was in the evening, 
the TV show played in the morning and it played, uh, you know, they put it on the air and we actually took the TV tape. We had to be down there by 11 o'clock in the morning. Well, it's a 300 mile trip from Amarillo. So you had to leave at like five o'clock in the morning to get make sure to get down there on time. Mm-hmm. And you'd do the, uh, you know, you'd go to the TV station instead of having taped interviews, they would play the, the wrestling show. And then during the breaks on the wrestling show, while the tape was running through for the two minute uh, place that they would normally insert interviews, we did the interviews there live with, wow. uh, the, with the promoter from uh, Albuquerque. Wow. Okay. So. After Albuquerque, if you were booked in El Paso, well, everybody was booked in El Paso the next day on Monday. So we'd stay over in, in Albuquerque and then drive to El Paso the next day, which was about 270 miles from, from Albuquerque. And then if, uh, if you were booked in uh, Odessa, Texas, mm-hmm. which was uh, another 180 miles uh, you could drive there after El Paso if you wanted to, or you could stay over in El Paso and drive there the next day. However, if you were booked in Abilene on Monday, you had to go back to Amarillo. Well, from El Paso to Amarillo is 470 miles. Damn. So I was riding with Terry. We had driven from uh, Albuquerque to uh, El Paso that afternoon. So 270 miles in a car, about four hours, I guess. Terry, Terry did. Terry did burn up the road. So going to, now we're going back to Amarillo and Buck Robley, a wrestler, well, he had um, an accident where he was out visiting Mother Nature on, right on the road and a car ran over or hit him and, and broke his leg and crippled him where he could never wrestle again, but he became one of the top managers and um, he was a, a guy that was really sharp with the business and everything. So you know, he did well for himself. He made money in the business, even though he didn't do much in the ring. But uh, Buck was was there, and Terry and I was there. I had to go back. I was Terry and Buck and I were all in Abilene, so we had to go back to Amarillo. I had a, I think, a fifth of rum. You could buy rum down there real cheap in in El Paso or Tijuana. They had each had a case of beer, I think. So, you know, 400, we got a, even if Terry going 85, 90 miles an hour, we've got a, <laughs> a six hour, a six hour trip, five, six hour trip. So, you know, they're, I'm, a, I'm still pretty green. Uh, I mean, the guys are friendly. I, you know, I would learn to work well enough that nobody was, nobody really ever treated me like a rookie. I mean, they, I was older. I'd been to service, you know, I wasn't like some young kid. I had right. established, I had established myself and other things before I, you know, got in a business. So mm-hmm. I don't know whether that created respect or whatever, but I got ripped, but I didn't get, uh, I didn't get picked on or denigrated. You know, I wasn't right. put down that nobody tried to humiliate me. So, but anyway, Terry and Terry and, uh, Buck are having a, who's the most rangy contest. They're drinking beer and they're talking about what they did and all these things and, uh, who did the rangiest thing. So Terry's, uh, like I said, Terry's driving. And uh, Buck said something about, well, you know, you're kind of, you drive, you kind of, you know, <laughs> you're kind of a puss, you know, with the way you drive here. And so the next overpass we came to, which there wasn't, there wasn't, the, we were on a state highway, no gas stations, no homes. Uh, you know, you could see spreads like ranches or something way in the distance of the side of the road, but there now there wasn't even any mailbox out by the side of the, of the state road for hundreds of miles. 
I'm talking about dark, no lights, no right. street lights, yeah. nothing. If the if the moon was behind the cloud, it was hey, you were going to pitch dark. So I mean, again, <laughs> we're talking about three or four hours without even seeing any lights anywhere except in the sky. So we come to one of these uh, little arroyo type passes that go over the. There's a road that goes over the road, and Terry went out, up one side at about 50 miles an hour. Did a uh, like a Yui, I mean, a turn onto the road, like the bridge over the road, and went back and went back down the other side and back onto the state road. And he was sliding in dirt all the way up and all the way back down, and then back on the road. And I scared the <laughs> heck out of me, you know. I'm going, oh, to wake you up. <laughs> oh, scared. Out. I didn't know he was going to do it. He didn't say, "Watch out!" All of a sudden, the car just takes off the road, is running off the side of this hill. You know, tires screeching, bumping up and down, bottles flying everywhere, and glass tinkling. I thought. And so we, when he got back on the road, it was quiet. I didn't say anything, you know, but. <laughs> But Terry's waiting for Buck to say something. Buck says, Buck says, uh, is that all you got? Oh, said, That's all you got, man. <laughs> says, you are tame, aren't you? Well, what happened was in doing that, Terry tore up one of his tires. So now, like I told you just a minute ago, we're out in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, I mean, there's no gas stations. There's no houses on the right. road. You it's no black, too. There were no cell phones yet. This is back. This is back in 1970. No cell phones, and uh, uh, all of a sudden you can hear this tire. It's losing, you know, pieces of, of the tire coming off. You know, you can hear them. It's flapping everything. <laughs> so that lasts for about. We're about 70 miles from the, where we know there's a gas station. It's a little town called Hereford, which is about 30, 40 miles outside of Amarillo on our side, the side we're approaching from. And we get there, we can get some gas and all that. Well, the tire, the tire went flat about a mile from a mile from uh, Hereford. And uh, by the time we got to Hereford, all the rubber had carried and slowed down. We're still going 60 miles an hour. By the time we got to Hereford, uh, all the rubber had come off. It was on the rim. So there's a, the rim is cutting into the road. There's a shower of sparks behind a car that's at least eight feet high. I mean, it's above the, the <laughs> rear of the car. That's 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 this road is being Terry's eating up a big divot. I, the divot in the road was there for I saw it for the next three months. Every time I went by there, it was about four four inches deep. Hey, I know how that inches. got there. <laughs> yeah, it's about three inches wide. And and here, now here's the deal: we went by. There was a cop. The town cop was waiting. <laughs> I mean, he was parked. I didn't see him until his lights went on. As we went by. This car pulls out behind us, and uh, the siren, you know, the light, the the lights on, and the sirens. And Terry got in the middle of the road where the guy couldn't pass him and couldn't block him. The cop, and got, you know. Meanwhile, I'm shoving. I'm thinking, oh, we're going to jail for going to prison on this one. And finally, the gas station is about another quarter, half mile, and Terry pulls in there, pulls up by the gas pump. Now they've got him and Buck have got at least fourteen to twenty bottles each of. Uh, empties beer bo- beer bottles down in the front uh, wheel well, you know the leg, right. leg where their legs go. Terry's got on a pair of shorts that's unbuckled the belt. He, I mean, unbuckled. That's all he's got on. No shoes, which is illegal. You're supposed to have shoes on when you drive. I, he might have had flip flops or something in the in the in the car, but he didn't care. So he opens the door and he gets out. He, he, like I said, he's got on just these shorts. 
no underwear when he gets out, his pants fall down around his knees. So he's standing there with his junk hanging out, looking back, and the cop pulls him behind us. And this cop is a local guy in this town. And I find that later, they know each other real well. Terry's been doing this for like 10 years, this kind of crap. But I didn't know that at the time. I'm thinking, all I see is a cop. If it's me driving, I know I'm going to jail for at least tonight, maybe for a week or two, where I can even get out. Right. But Terry gets out. We got all these beer bottles on the floor. A couple bottles fell out when he got out. Bottles fell out. Sure. Robley got out. A four or five fell out of his side, too. And I thought, oh, God, you know, I would be definitely going to jail on this one. And somehow he talked his way. I mean, what the oh, I left something out. Not only did he not have a license with him, his license has actually been suspended. Oh, not surprising <laughs> at this point in the story. But he's Terry, this here's the deal. Think about it. He's Terry Funk and Dory Funk Sr. Right. And Terry and Terry Jr. owned Amarillo in a way. The way that Terry and Dory or Dory Sr. The way they advertised wrestling in, in town when they first started, you know how they did it? No. They went out they went out to bar did you hear the story? No, I, I don't they, I don't believe so. They went out to bars and they went out to bars and they were drinking and they wait they wait for somebody to say something, you know, about wrestling. Mm -hmm. You know, they were had their T V show going. Right. They go out to bars on Saturday night, like eleven thirty, twelve o'clock when people were drunk and they they did if they couldn't get in or couldn't uh, have a fight come to them. They go to the fight. They find a fight, and they got arrested. I don't know every every once or twice a month for uh, a year or two, but they always got out. But what the what they did with doing that is people said, "Well, I don't know about wrestling, but those two guys are real. Those two guys are tough." <laughs> you know, they fought basically everybody in the city. Well, they they had more publicity. They had sure. more publicity. Sure, and I, you know, I don't know if I've heard that story about the Funks doing that, but I have heard that being done. It's been done in Memphis or Nashville and things like right. that at different times. So, no, that's that's really cool. <laughs> that's what they did yeah. to get going there. But that's I'm trying to picture Terry Funk driving like that with the sparks flying, pulling into the gas station, blocking the police officer from passing him or getting around him, uh, just um, getting out of the car with the beer cans falling out, which is. Fairly dangerous in itself. I mean, they could have got stuck, by, you know, underneath the, the brakes, I guess. But at least we know Terry Funk's not a litter bug, right? He kept everything <laughs> in the car. So. <laughs> well, what, what he what had happened? He lived in a place, a little place called Arroyo, uh, which is I think like a little canal through the the mesquite, the dirt out there. He lived in a little town called Arroyo that was only a couple of miles from uh, Hereford. So he would go through Hereford about ninety miles an hour. By the top, the time the cops got after him, he would be a mile ahead. Well, he would get around, go around the corner. He ducked down the road to Arroyo to his home, and the cops wouldn't see him. He'd pull into his driveway and in the garage. The cops wouldn't see his car. They'd go on by. Mm. He got away with it for years. And then I heard this story. I wasn't there at the time. He got away with it for years. And one night they smartened up. After they smartened up, <laughs> when he went through town at 90, they had the roadblock. The road into Arroyo was blocked. So Terry got out, <laughs> got out of his car. He got out and he went around his car kicking in the fenders and jumped, got up on the hood and jumped up and down. He got up on the, on the top of the car on the roof and jumped up and down. He's cussing the car. You filthy car. You should let me down. You weren't going fast enough. You gave him time to, you gave him time to get the roadblock. Get the roadblock you know, off. Yeah. Yeah. He destroyed his car. 
and the cops the cops were so amused that they didn't charge him with uh, oh my god they oh, could have charged the, <laughs> the Terry uh, Funk charm my god yeah yeah uh, he he was he was <laughs> you know what he was crazy but in a way that uh, you were kind of in on the joke with him you know right. he, he wasn't yeah. he wasn't harming people you know he no, wasn't hurt yeah. so yeah what a character though a oh, very lovable. Great. Guy, yeah. So what happened at the gas station? The, the the cop lets you go, but you guys can't keep riding. Did you keep uh, rolling down the street well, in that I, car? <laughs> well, we had to get the tire. We had to get the a sure. new tire. And sure. Terry did something. I don't know whether he, the, the cop ended up taking off. I couldn't. I mean, I was, right. I, I was, I sobered up real quick. I think, I'm man, sure. you know, I, I really don't need to be in jail. <laughs> we, you know, here. Uh, late, that's just you know, one road story. <laughs> Yeah, this four o'clock, four o'clock in the morning on Monday morning. I'm lucky if I can get home. We got to leave about eleven o'clock to go to Abilene, you know, to get there in time. You know, oh my God, I, I don't want to be in jail all night. There won't be any sleep. But that, you know, that was oh, Terry. Great stories. I've got some more that we'll talk about oh, down the line. Wait. But, I can't wait. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I almost feel bad now because I was going to ask you, you know, poor Dory now he has to follow this because I was going to ask you at the time you broke in back there in 69, Dory Funk Jr. was the world heavyweight champion of the NWA. Right. And, uh, you know, I was going to start off by maybe talking about Dory and then segueing into Terry, but we've already, you know, let the cat out of the bag. Now we've discussed Terry. So I kind of feel bad making Dory follow that. But really, my only question was, as you broke in. And Dory Funk Jr. was your world champion of the NWA, if you will. I was just curious, the first time you saw him in the ring, did you, you know, or any kind of, maybe not stories you may have of, of meeting with Dory and things, maybe that wasn't, you know, somebody you hung around with, but just curious, like, your your take of Dory the wrestler and also Dory being the world champion. Well, Terry and, Terry and Dory were brothers, but you would never know it. If you, right. <laughs> uh, if you put them in a room... Uh, and with four or five other people that that look more like Terry, uh, and asked who who were brothers, nobody would have picked him and Dory. Uh, they didn't look anything alike, and and their temperaments are completely different too. Dory was, you know, I heard some stories about Dory Jr. partying a little, but not many. And when he was champion, he didn't. Okay. Uh, he wasn't. Ric Flair is champion. Ric Flair was out every night after the matches and going to bars and. Uh, laying a couple hundreds on a, on the bar and you know saying you know asking them to mix up a big whole whole uh, punch bowl full of vodka stoli vodka for everybody in the bar and you know he was a you know he was a Mr. Party guy. Dory Jr. was completely different. He was more of a private person. I think I never ever had a, a like an intimate conversation with him. Well, I was never rode in a car with him. Okay. Uh, so I don't know him as well. I worked. With, I had the pleasure of working with him. I uh, worked a title match with him in Amarillo, uh, but I when he was, of course, he was a champion. But I, I don't remember the match. It must have been. Oh, I was working with him. I mean, that guy was a genius. Okay. Uh, you, see, you know, the match is going to be good. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, he could work with a guy in a wheelchair and have a great match. As far as uh, uh, he's he's the opposite of the wild man. Right, you know he he and Terry would he and Terry would be good as Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, you know. Oh, that would, that would be good. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but Dory and and Dory would, uh, Senior was uh, was more Terryish than he was Junior. Right. Uh, he, so, he sounded he, like he, it based on those bar stories you were telling. 
Well, you know, they all were educated. Senior graduated from, I think, Indiana uh, and uh, uh, wrestled there. And I think uh, Dorian, uh, Dorian Terry both went to West Texas, West I believe. Texas, right. A lot of the boys out there did. So, uh, yeah, they were educated guys. I mean, they weren't, you know, they weren't just uh, rough rough guys with no, no brains. Well, it sounds they're, like Dorian took working with the world title fairly seriously. He was going to be, you know, on the ball and he – by everybody's account. There's a great match out there. I don't have the date off the top of my head, but I saw it a long time ago, and it's not really always my cup of tea to watch the old 60-minute, you know, the the time limit draws to Broadway's, unless it's, you know, Flair and Steamboat had a really great one in the late 80s, 89 or whatever, and then there's been some other great ones as well over time, but when you go back to that era, they can tend to be a little boring sometimes. Yes. They had a matchup, Dory and Jack Briscoe did. If you just really appreciate wrestling, it was in all Japan, and I don't remember the date, but I, I've seen it a few times, the matchup. I just sat there for the entire hour, just mesmerized by their counters, the wrestling. It was a really great match. They, you know, you were talking about those two going at it for an hour. I've seen it, and you know, it was a really good match. So uh, I just yeah. seeing Dory as world champion versus Dory maybe later on down the road, maybe not everybody's cup of tea trying to you know, work him into the WWF in the mid-'80s as Hoss Funk, if you will. But um, going back in there, I was just curious how he was. It sounds like he took it very seriously. Like Bruno, there's stories always of Bruno San Martino when he was world champion in the WWF. He always took it very seriously to where to the point where he wouldn't even drink wine if he was out publicly eating dinner at a restaurant because he didn't want children to see him drinking alcohol. So it's just very interesting how some of these guys took things back then. Uh, I guess you're talking about an element of kayfabe, right? And uh, where you know kayfabe is like ixnay on the letting anybody know what's really going on here sure. uh, and protecting the business. And that was, uh, you know, that was always a, a major factor forever until uh, 89, 1989, when a WWF went on A&E, I believe it was. And, you know, you had top wrestler in the world, Hulk Hogan, telling everybody that wrestling wasn't real. It was just a sports entertainment. And, you know, that, <laughs> so you had the, the major promoter in the world was telling the world that, you know, no, what we're doing isn't real. It's just sports entertainment. And of course, by, you know, you have to extrapolate that. You have to say, well, then if it's not now, then it never was, was it? So all those guys that all those years, now the guys that spent their whole career kayfabing and not even telling their families that it wasn't real. Right. Imagine what those guys had to say to their wives or children. Just imagine. imagine. Yeah. You know, I I am so far removed from that era now that I just, I totally forget that some of those guys did do that. They worked their family, their wives. It's just insane. Yeah. Think think that. Yeah. They go home and lay on the couch for a week like they're hurt when they weren't. And, but, you know, they, I I don't understand it. I mean, but, you know, older, older generations. Um, it depends on what your relationship your wife with your wife would be. You know, I would never want to do that. You know, as a living lie, you're lying to your, you know, person you're supposed to love. Uh, if you can't trust them, I mean, you can't trust them. Right. Yeah. I remember another little uh, off the side. I remember an interview David Schultz did. It was before or, or around the time he slapped the John Stossel. Uh, yeah, Stop Stossel. He was, they did an interview where they came to his house and uh, oh yeah, his you, house. you remember the quote, one? Quote, yeah, his log cabin house. Absolutely. Yeah, and they're talking to him and everything, and <laughs> and uh, he's you know he's rough and gruff and you know the the, the mad the, you know the real 
butthead, you know. I mean, yeah. he's good. well, he has one of his kids there, one of his sons. They were they I were actors. It. They were actors, I believe. Oh, were they? Yeah. Oh, were yeah. they? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know I that. I well, that's that, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that that okay. I got a whole new light on it because the kid when when he when Shelf is saying all this horrible stuff, <laughs> right? The kids the kids just kind of grinning at him, and Shelf says, "What are you grinning at?" And the kid's face just crumpled, you know. It looked like he was terrified. And I thought, you know, that it was Shelter's real kid, and he knew Daddy wasn't really hurt. Right. right. So he wasn't selling it. So Shelter realized he wasn't selling it, and he got. I hated the guy's guts. I thought, what a jerk well, that he would. He, but you know, if it I, was think an actor, I think I think there's some. Tr- well, I think there's some truth to that though, because I'm not saying the kid knew Dave. But if I remember the story correctly, the kid was smiling, and Schultz did do that to keep him from smiling because he was an actor, but it wasn't like he they pulled him out of Hollywood or anything, right? They just right. was an actor kid, and he was given you know s- some short direction probably to sit here. I mean, it was 1984, <laughs> WWF, maybe early 85, whatever. So it wasn't like Vince was like perfect yet, you know, with the, with the production and things. So I'm right. sure there yeah. was probably a little bit of realism in there. Boy, well, I'll let me smack you, your ear off, you know. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you this. It got heat. I didn't know Schultz at all. I'd met him, I think, but I don't I was never had even had a beer with him or anything in my uh-huh. career and never did. But yeah, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I, the guy, you know, he's he's whatever he does is whatever people do, they're the ones that pay for it in most cases. So I'm fine with it. But that got heat with me because I had young kids <laughs> at the time when I saw that. I thought, what a jerk. If that is really now finding out it's not his kid, it's it, actually brilliant because he did get some serious heat. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I thought anybody <laughs> wouldn't hate the guy. Anyone wouldn't hate someone who was like that to his own kid. My God. No, that was a great segment. He even shot off like a rifle in his own house or whatever. Vince McMahon screams at him in the end of the segment. So that was just. Yeah. A- for the time, man, when you have no prototype to those things in wrestling, that was you're right. That was pretty pretty brilliant segment. Yeah, it was. It was brilliant. I I, I thought it was great. Then he goes and uh, slaps Stossel, and he doesn't have a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was you know Vince told me one of one them stick up for the business, I think, and I don't know how more much more you could stick up for it. Well, I, you know, that's not really great smacking a guy like half your size. No, you got to got to be wise. I mean, that's big business, man, 2020. Well, yeah, and and it's, you know, I mean, hitting anybody half your size, I don't care if it's a man, a woman, whatever, especially you're a bully, you know, you're it's not uh, you know, you could oh, spit in his face or, you know, whatever, threaten him, grab him by the lapels and shake him. Sure. But just slap the slap the guy, you know. No. I think Stossel got a nice little settlement out of that, so maybe he's not complaining. Uh, well, let me think. Would I want a, a <laughs> quarter of a quarter of a million dollars to get slapped on TV in front of the whole world? Let me think. Uh, no, nope, I don't think so. <laughs> maybe a lot of people would. I wouldn't. Sorry. <laughs> I'd take it. I'm not ashamed, man. I'll take the, I'll take the money. <laughs> I'll take it with one codicil. As soon as the camera goes off. Oh, no holds barred. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's so fair. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever happens, happens. Well, I mean, uh, you know, before we get too far into the show, I, I thought maybe we'd go back a little bit and talk a little bit more about the early part of your career this week, if you're down for it. Of course. Oh, very good. 
So last week we talked about your very first match, Dick Dunn. We now know July 29th, 1969. So let's go back to the beginning of your career once more as we continue to tell the Bob Roop story, guys. And I didn't think to ask this last week, but how was Bob Roop, the wrestling character, if you will, for lack of a better term, how were you presented? I I know Eddie Graham was touting your Olympic credentials for both your sake and his. So do you start off as an all-American babyface here? Is that, you know, is that what they, for lack of a better term? Okay. Yeah, yeah, and they what they did for a while. I hated it. They said I was a Olympic champion, and there's nothing, nothing. There's no worse. Google back then, Bob. No Google. No, but there's nothing <laughs> worse. If you, any wrestlers, any amateur wrestlers watching that would know that that was a lie. And and there's nothing worse you can do is to claim to claim uh, titles that you didn't take. I right, mean, because it, they're saying it, not you, but it it comes back yeah. on you. It reflects on you. I get you. Yeah. Yeah, so it, you lose your credibility for what you did do. You know, I mean, oh, you make an Olympic team is fairly credible. The fact that, but you claim you won a gold medal too. Well, it it taints the whole thing. So I didn't like that part. What are you going to do? They're the run. They're run the promotion. I right. worked for them. All I could do was, uh, which I did a few times, is just quit. It's wrestling. Everything is a gimmick. You could have been an Olympic gold medalist, Bob, and never even been in the Olympics as far as wrestling goes. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Do you remember who was booking the territory when you first started down there in 69? Yeah, it was Louis Tillette. Tillette, okay. I know he had booked off and on for Florida and maybe a few other places. Maybe Alabama? Does that sound right? Tillette had booked a few places down south. I'm not sure about any place but Florida. Well, he, he booked Pensacola for a while. Okay. Uh, that's right. Gulf Florida. Coast. Yeah, Gulf Coast. There yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he so, was, you know, he was a decent booker. You know, he, Eddie, Eddie was, Eddie Graham was, was still involved. I think they kicked ideas around. Eddie was still, uh, Eddie had a lot of great ideas uh, and finishes from his experience. And I think they, they worked out stuff together. But, you know, Louie would go to the shows and run the shows. And uh, he was, you know, he was fine. Okay. So as I was sorting through your early opponents, specifically a few names that you were basically married to in the ring for most of the early months here in the business for your career, I noticed a little pattern for the most part. You were put in there, and likely not by accident, I would think, with a lot of veterans, I mean longtime veterans, that were already beyond their prime in the ring, well beyond their prime, some of them. Do you think this was done because the grizzled vets, might you might learn something from them, or was it just there were names that were expendable on the roster that they could put you over or maybe both, both situations. Oh, that latter one, the both. I think the fact that, that they like Hans Mortier, for example, sure. you know, he had, he had been fairly good. I mean, one time he was Florida heavyweight champion. So he had apparently had, had some stature in the territory at one time. And uh, I know even though they didn't have cable, he had been big up in uh, New York or the, where the WWF, operated i think it was www back then but right. uh, mcmahon senior he had a feud with bruno sammartino up there but when i met him or when i worked with him uh, i i don't remember him getting any great like coming to the ring he didn't get people screaming at him like he had a lot of heat you know that people hated him or whatever he looked he looked about 60 i mean his body looked great yeah but his face he was uh, <laughs> he was obviously an old he right. looks older than I am. I do now, uh, to me, anyway. And I also don't remember the matches I saw. I was looking on uh, some background stuff on wrestling, uh, wrestling records, and uh, 
I worked with them a, a few times, but I don't remember any of the matches, which okay. means that they must but must have gone okay. So that answers your one one leg of your question about putting somebody in there who could lead me around and make me look good. You know, I mean, where I didn't look like a you know I one stumbling, not having a clue about what to do. Um, that's one thing, and then the fact that they had a little stature too. That when I beat them, that meant something. But um, I noticed that uh, Mortier retired just a few years after that, like right. four or five years later. Somewhere around so seventy-three, he, I think. Yeah, so he was in he was in the in the waning uh, part of his uh, in, in of his career. So I, I don't know, maybe he was living in Florida because he liked it there or whatever. I'm not sure, but uh, I know he wasn't working. I don't think he was working every day. Uh, but uh, yeah, he was one of them. Yeah, I think by the time you got in the ring with him, he'd already been in the business 20-plus years. And then I think he also used about 20-plus aliases from some of the research I did. But <laughs> none more famous than Hans Mortier. He started back in the mid-1940s. So here he is all the way in 1969 working with Bob, a very young rookie Bob Roop. So it was he was definitely on my list. And I was just curious you know, if you had any memories of getting in there with him. I didn't know if there was some of these guys, I would imagine, these guys heading off to retirement here fairly soon. Some of them are probably a little grumpy that, that, you know, they have to say goodbye to the business. So I'm just curious, you know, along the way, if I drop any names that you remember, they weren't too pleasant to work with because they knew that, you know, their, their time, the, the sun was setting on their career, so to speak. So, but Hans Mortier definitely was on my list here. Also early on, you worked a couple other names here, one by the name of Eduardo Perez. He too, he was a 20 year veteran, worked just about everywhere from what I could tell, especially in the Southeastern territories. He seems to slow down throughout the 1970s, but he is on the list. I didn't know if you had any memories of him. Uh, again, the matches must have been okay because I don't even remember working with him. But uh, Eduardo Eddie was uh, was a great guy. He what a he was a he had great stories. He had a charming accent. He uh, was an outrageous character uh, in uh, in public around people. He was people really liked him. And the only thing I remember about him. Uh, that stands out. He had to work with the the wrestling bear one time, and the bear busted him open. Uh, so hard way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he probably had butted him with that mask that they that yeah. that other mask they put on. He had to watch that. That bear headbutt you with that thing, and it was hard. It was hard leather, so it right. wouldn't come apart. Uh, so yeah, you had to be careful. Yeah, uh, other other guys, you mentioned uh, in a text that we were sending back and forth, uh, Cisco Gamaldo and... Uh, Smasher Sloan was... Uh, Smasher Sloan. Yeah, so Smasher uh, Sloan, see, he, he had already probably worked about 15 years by this point, but he was also in and out of New York, Washington, the WWF throughout most of the 1960s. So he had had a lot of exposure up there in Vince Sr.'s territory by the time he came back down to Florida. And you got in the ring with him. But I think you told me off air at one point, I think you said you had a Smasher Sloan story, maybe? Yeah, he was, uh, I worked, again, I don't remember the matches, so they must have gone okay. But he uh, he asked me and Jack Briscoe to uh, go scuba diving with him at a, a sinkhole, a place called Blue, Blue, Blue Grotto. And it was, a, I think, a limestone quarry, probably uh, maybe about 50 yards across. Where we were going, I thought we were going down into the quarry itself, uh, which is, you know, is all there's sunlight above. It's, uh, you know, it's open sky above. But what he had in mind was um, there there was a shaft at one side of this thing that angled at about 45 degrees uh, away from it. It was at the very edge of 
the big hole that had been created by them taking like whatever gravel, limestone, whatever it was they took out of there. Right. And the shaft went down about a hundred feet and it went at a forty-five degree angle. So by the time you got to the bottom, you were about twenty-five feet away from the edge of that hole. And above you is like many, many thousands of tons of rock and dirt and trees and all that. And I'm claustrophobic. So we went, we got out there. They had one of those little uh, cable bridge types like you see in the Raiders of Lost Ark going across, you know, the, the ravines and all that. Right. Oh, and uh, so oh, we thanks. walked, carried, carried our tanks and walked out there. Jack uh, pulled the gimmick of having an earache so he couldn't go. So I, I put on, I didn't want to, you know, Don brought us up there. I didn't want to tell him I didn't want to go either. So, and I did. I didn't, again, I didn't know about the tunnel or the, the shaft. <laughs> That's a good figure. Yeah, Don gave me the shaft. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, we go down this thing, and it's it's well known. They've got a, a, a little rope tied up with uh, hooks into the wall of the of the shaft. So you have this rope on the way down. There's a there's about 20 feet down. There's a, a little area you can stop and get the air, get the oxygen, you know, the nitrogen out of your system. You can stop there, and so you don't won't come up and get the bends from having the, if you stay down below too long. So we went down to the bottom where the shaft ended. Like I say, maybe a hundred feet. Well, Don had this hand flashlight that was pretty bright. You know, everything was just you know it was it was dim a little bit, but. The whole the whole thing was to set up a rib, and the rib was, we got down to the bottom, and there was a room there about, oh, maybe 10 feet across or 10 feet high and about 20 feet deep. And Don shone the flashlight into the room, and he signaled for me. He pointed at me, like, to go ahead and swim in there and take a look around. He signaled, like, pointed at his mask, you know, and, like, and, and pointed out, like, hey, go take a look in the room in there. So, uh, you know, I, what are you going to say? No. <laughs> so I, I went to take a look. And when I got down to the far end, he turned the flashlight off. Now, you want to talk about dark? You know, there's no light anywhere. Right. And not only dark, what happened is when he did, I whirled around in a panic. And there's sediment, dust, uh, not dust, but dirt, little dirt things. That would be dust out in the open air, maybe six inches thick. And when I flailed around with my flippers and my hands turned around, I stirred up a whole like bushel of that stuff oh, yeah. so that when he turned the light back on, I could just barely see it. And oh, man, you talk about uh, I, I had a hard time not yeah, totally, totally panicking. Bigger yeah, man than me, the, I would have. They would. I would have said, "Yep, I'm a coward. I'm not going down there." <laughs> I would never, no, ever, I never, mean, ever, ever would I've been no. down in there. <laughs> oh no, I didn't. I, I don't recall ever asking Don to take me down there again. No, <laughs> I certainly didn't. Uh, you know, I now, you know, I didn't even at the time even realize it was a rip. I didn't think. You know, why would anybody do that on purpose? He told <laughs> me the light. He told me the light malfunction. Of course, when I asked him about it, naturally. But uh, but but he was ribbing me and. Yeah, so that's fine. You know, I mean, I liked that. He was, you know, he would, hey, put me over. And see, with Eduardo and, uh, oh, poor Cisco uh, Grimaldo, mm -hmm. uh, we, were, we were working one of our matches. He grabbed a headlock, and we were about five feet away from 
the nearest corner. He like punched me and then he grabbed a headlock and he ran my head in a turnbuckle on that uh, and then let go and I I sold it like I, my head I'd you know it dazed me uh, hitting the, the turnbuckle. So I grabbed the headlock again. He took off for the one across the opposite corner. Right. And there was a big ring, an eighteen foot ring. So we're going halfway across, and I didn't know. I had no clue what he wanted to do. And then I thought about it. I'd seen it before. What I was supposed to do was shove him off. But by the time that came to me, we were only about three feet from the corner, <laughs> and I shoved him. Remember oh, when I told you the other day about Steve Williams, Doctor yes. Death, grabbing yeah. my arm yeah. and picking me up, you know, off my feet? <laughs> I would. I used the same amount of strength to launch because I was in a hurry. I wanted to do the spot. The poor guy only weighed about 100, 210 pounds at the most. I, I had my hand in the small of his back. I launched him. The top turnbuckle hit him like right under his under his throat. Uh, the oh. the the middle turnbuckle hit him in the crotch and. His feet were about a foot off the ground. And a ton the of force guy. behind him because you were so oh, close God, to the corner. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. Oh, I felt so bad. But I was uh, curious how it was working with him because I was doing some research on Cisco and it, it stated that, you know, it looked like he broke in about a, a decade before this, but he worked a lot of years down there in Mexico for the EMLL and whatnot. And then he came up and started working the old Arizona territory for a couple of years before he finally came over here to Florida very recently by 69. So. It didn't like, seem like he had a lot of uh, U- United States American wrestling experience other than working Arizona before he came here. So I was just curious, you know, how, how easy or hard it was working with him and if there was, you know, an issue with the language as well because he hadn't been here very long. But uh, it sounds like the issue was on your end, not his. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only thing I remember is that bad move on my part, or, you know, poor guy. Uh, so the Masters must have been good. Okay. Uh, I don't remember him talking to me. I don't know how, what it was just by... You know, his, you know, there's ways you can work with guys without talking to them. Just where right. you put your body in proximity and kind of lead them around by just having them follow you. You know, I, I don't mean doing exactly what you're doing. I mean, yeah, matching your moves while you're facing them. Anyway, I remember the master's good. Now, there was another another Hispanic wrestler named uh, Pepe Gomez. Yes, sir. And uh, I never worked with Pepe, and I think the reason why they didn't book us it was because I don't think they, they I think they knew he couldn't lead he couldn't lead me in a match, and I didn't know how to lead yet. So uh, they never booked me with him. That means that Cisco obviously did, but uh, Cisco, or, I mean Pepe had a couple of funny stories. He came in the office one day and he was oh he just <laughs> he was kind of mild guy, but he was just uh, I think he was Mexican, but he he was uh, spitting mad, you know. And I said what. Well, What's the problem? He said, oh, they gave me a ticket. They gave me a ticket. I said, what for? He said, well, he said, that I, he said I was speeding. I said, well, they pulled you over? He said, no. He said, I ran into a woman uh, in her car. And I said, well, you did. You ran into a woman with your car. He said, yeah. I said, well, they should have given you a ticket for, you know, something like that. He said, no, they get it for speeding. I said, are you sure they didn't give you? It was raining that day. He said, yeah, my tires skidded, and I ran into her. I said, are you sure they didn't give you a ticket for going too fast for conditions? He said, no, it was for speeding. I wasn't speeding. I was only going 10 miles an hour. I said, but you still ran into a car, right? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, you know, you're not supposed to run into other people's cars. Right. You know, so, so you got a ticket because you ran for a car. Yeah, but I wasn't speeding. I couldn't get him to understand that the concept that, uh, listen, 
running somebody's car, you're gonna get some kind of ticket, you know. But yeah, maybe uh, maybe he should now, be happy with the speeding ticket. Could have been worse. Well, well, they had a one time they had a match on television. They put Cisco and and Pepe together against each other, and they wanted to put Cisco over. They wanted to give him one on TV because he'd been on. He'd been on, I don't know, 50 times over a year, you know, over the years. He'd been on a bunch of times doing, you know, putting people over. Yeah. So they wanted to get, put him over. And uh, Pepe was, uh, wasn't real happy about it. He wasn't happy with the idea that, you know, uh, he was having to do, you know, lay down for a guy who <laughs> laid down for everybody else. So he got kind of stiff in there. Cisco went to try to whip him in the corner and uh, he held on to the ropes and wouldn't let him whip him. <laughs> so. Cisco put him back in the corner, uh, hit him with a couple of uh, punches that perhaps weren't working, weren't working punches. Sure. And gee, the next time he went to throw him in the corner, <laughs> he went, went right along. He just sailed right <laughs> in there. Imagine that. The <laughs> like, Pepe came in afterwards. He had a big knot on his forehead. And I said, gee, Pepe, what, did you run to the ring or run to the ring pole or what? He said, oh, no. He said, oh, he potatoed me. I said, gee, no kidding. <laughs> I wonder why, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he straightened right up. Uh, I mean, I had to admire uh, Cisco. You, you know, there's ways to get guys to work without having to, you know, throw up your hands and say I quit and walk right. out of the ring. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, I appreciate all those guys. If any of them are around or any of the relatives happen to be here in this, let me say that this is one retired wrestler that appreciates because any stature that I gained. Uh, in my career, began with people like uh, Cisco and Smasher Sloan and people like that, and Hans Mortier, who went out there and, you know, they laid down for me. They put, you know, I, I could have beat them for real, but that was just horrible. Right. Uh, more people go to see in Mexico City at the Olympics, uh, the wrestling. They had a building that seated about 5,000 people that never would sell out. But the wrestling, the pro wrestling down there on TV, they had a building to seat 25 people. It was always sold out for Lucha Libre, pro wrestling. But amateur wrestling is boring, unless you're a wrestling fan. Uh, I mean, an amateur wrestling fan. Usually it's family and, and friends who are the ones in the audience or former wrestlers. But it's it's, it's kind of discipline that's not, you know, it's, it doesn't have any drama to it because nobody gets hurt. You know, in amateur wrestling, it's all about not hurting people. So... Unless you really are keen on amateur wrestling, it, it wouldn't hold any interest to you. So, but so I appreciate the guys that that put me over. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had the career. And later on, when I became a heel and worked as a heel, I was I wasn't a job guy in terms of like that's all I did. I made the matches, and the, probably if I worked with a, say Rocky Johnson ten times, uh, he would beat me eight of those times. And the only two I won, I cheated somehow by hitting him with a gimmick or holding his tights or something. Uh, I never beat him fair and square right. because that's the way that's the way it goes. If you have the bad guys winning, fans are not going to keep coming to see that. They don't want the bad guys to win. Now some do, but most of them don't. Right, uh, especially back in those days. Yeah, back yeah. Now there's a lot of heel fans, you know. So <laughs> some of the best baby faces. You imagine Dick the Bruiser as a babyface, but he was for a while in Indianapolis. Yeah, he certainly was. He'd been, yeah. heel, he'd been heel so long that, you know, when you get somebody like that as a babyface, the fans go crazy because they say, well, 
we got this monster now. You know, it's like Darth Vader turns to good guy, you know, and now right. you got him on the side of good. He's going to go and kill the bad guys now. Anyway, huh, no, how are we very, doing? It's a very good point. No, you're doing great. I, you know, I, I love the comments you made there. I, I hopefully, you know, we do reach a few wrestlers that may still be around or at least some of their family members, or maybe somebody gets word to some of their family members uh, that, you know, here's Bob Roop talking about their, maybe they want to hear these great stories about a Pepe Gomez or a Smasher Sloan or Cisco or anything, you know, any of these guys like that. So that's very cool that you're able to share all these different stories. You have something to say about everyone to, to some degree. So some of the names I have on my list, I, you know, I, I was probably going to name them, but I didn't know if you would have anything to say and you're bringing them up yourself, which is totally cool. Like, Pepe Gomez here on my list, but I didn't know if you would have anything to say because I didn't really see any, you know, that you were working against him. You explained why. So that makes total sense there. But I guess we're kind of running long. We're not really running long. We're just about that normal time we end the show. But I wanted to get one more name in if you got the time, Bob. Sure. Everybody's like dying in suspense, this big name. And I hate to put him down like that because it's not, it's not a Ric Flair. It's not a Luthez, guys. But you had mentioned traveling with this guy a little bit there early on in your career, along with Sputnik Monroe, and I'm talking about Sonny King. He'd only broken in the year prior to you, and he gets a lot of flack for never really being the best in the ring, the best technical worker, if you will. But do you have any early Sonny King memories, any anecdotes uh, about Sonny King? Oh, man, I wish I did. Uh, I only knew him when, when I was hanging around with Sputnik, and okay. it was a period of pr probably a month. And I heard some things, and Sonny, and don't get me wrong, we got along fine, but, you know, we didn't we didn't hang out together okay. uh, when Sputnik wasn't around. He was our, like, our common denominator. Gotcha. But so, so, no, I really don't. You know, but I do want to go back and say something. Okay. Uh, not just guys from my generation. I want to I talk to today's generation of, sure. of wrestlers. You know, guys and girls out there, uh, anybody, promoters, Anybody that's helping you with your product and for you being successful personally, you should be grateful because they don't have to do it. I mean, maybe you think, well, they do because the only way they're going to get booked is, you know, to do a job for me or whatever. But is that really the best reason to have someone work for you? By showing appreciation, you'll get people working for you that have a lot better attitude if you know you respect them and you're grateful. And if you aren't and you don't, you can expect uh, well nothing but negative feedback. I see a lot of stuff on Facebook. Um, I'm going through uh, a lot of stuff. I see a lot of stuff about common uh, today's wrestling. I see a lot of negative commentary about people's attitudes. Uh, it's just a shame because I, again, I I'm not real familiar with it, so maybe I'm being out of out of line here a little bit. But just be appreciative of your good fortune. If you have somebody help you out. When people go out there in a the ring, uh, they're risking their, their health. It's very easy to get hurt. So they're taking a risk to help you out. So be appreciative. Uh, that's all I wanted to say about that. Oh, very well said. Thank you very much for uh, chiming in on you know that to the today's world. But I think a lot of that, too, goes back to just society today and how people think and their behavior has just changed quite a bit over the last several decades, for better or worse. That's really up to, I guess, somebody else to decide other than me, but I, you know, I feel exactly what you're saying there. And it's very cool that you were able to share something like that with not just, it doesn't just go with what happened back in the seventies and eighties, but that goes to today because wrestling's still wrestling. Yes. A lot of things have changed. The, the matches are put together very differently and things of that nature. Yes. We know it's a work and all this good stuff now, but it's still at the end of the day, these guys are giving you their body and they're, and you know, 
yeah, it's the it's up to the boss to say you're doing the job tonight. But at the same time, they're doing the job tonight. <laughs> they're they're helping you out the best way they can. So, and if people are doing it right, like you know the the veterans, if they're doing it right, you know maybe maybe a Chris Jericho or something like that. I know he gets a lot of flack for putting himself over and stuff, but I have to go with him because of the youngsters that he wrestles with. Anyway, you know at least they're they're trying to help you help get you over for the next generation. Well, uh, if you think about if you're sick medically and you need help and someone donated blood uh, and saved your life or helped you at least recover somewhat, I think you'd be grateful to them. Well, think about your, your career. The people that help you, when you beat somebody, you take whatever stature they had. And sometimes you have to, you know, it might be they have a great body. So, when, you know, nobody, they don't have a reputation, but they look great. So when you beat them, you beat somebody who looks strong and capable. So what, and the work it took them to get that body is what helps you do that. So all their work and all that, they're sacrificing their own fame and their own uh, credibility on that to add to yours. It's just like a blood transfusion for your career. And you should look at it that way and think about it because uh, it's not, a, it's not a, a minor thing that people are giving you. They're giving you part of their personal stature and they're willing to give it to you so you can carry it and make some money for yourself with it. So. I look back at guys from my generation that took it for granted, and uh, frankly, the uh, the affection and and respect uh, that I should I have for someone like JYD, who did have appreciation for people who helped him, uh, it's not there for for others. I mean, I wish it was. I don't hold a grudge, but when I think about them, <laughs> they gave me no reason to respect them or to you know appreciate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, working with them was all take. And, uh, you know, it wasn't two-sided. And uh, I, I didn't ask them to give back their stature. I just put a, uh, appreciation would be nice. So, right. okay, I've lectured enough. I'll get off no, the soapbox. No, very, well, <laughs> very well said. Very much appreciated, man. It's uh, very cool to hear this stuff because it needs to be said, I think. And uh, words of wisdom here, guys. So listen up, youngsters. <laughs> you guys, uh, well, maybe maybe not so much youngsters, too. There's a lot of people that just never learn, like you said, but... Yeah, thanks so much, Bob, for all of that and every all the great stories here this week, especially the Terry Funk stories. They were all fun, don't get me wrong, but the Terry Funk stories stole the show, I'm sure, for everyone that was listening, but certainly for me, and I just appreciate you being here again this week, getting another one out. But next time we return, Bob, it's going to be Thanksgiving Eve. Wow. Well, thank you, Ray. I mean, I you know, I'm almost not frustrated, but I'm... I'm eager, you know, there's so much, so much to talk about, you know, we've got years to do it, but you know, I start getting some of the stuff out and then these other things come welling up and I, I'm eager, I'm eager to share them too. So sure. I, we've got some good stuff to look forward to. And I'm really, I really appreciate that we're doing it together. Absolutely. And as always guys, remember Bob, you can find Bob, Bob Roop on Facebook, look him up, friend him. And if you have any questions, you can send them to WrestleCopia at gmail.com or DM me on Facebook, facebook.com slash wrestling grenade. You can also follow me on Twitter or the old X as they call it now at wrestling grenade. That's at R A S S L I N grenade. Of course, I have been your co host, Ray Russell, along for the ride for Mr. Bob Root. Bob, thank you again for another fun journey throughout wrestling history. Can't wait to do it again next week. Uh, thank you, Ray. Me, me too. I'm looking forward to our next play together. <laughs> <laughs>